Welcome to the Environmental Leadership Chronicles, a podcast brought to you by the California Association of Environmental Professionals. In this episode, we delve into the world of generative AI with Gayani Weaver-Singher, an intellectual property attorney, and Hobson Lane, an AI developer, professor, and social impact entrepreneur. As generative AI continues to evolve and become more integrated into our lives, we wanted to launch a mini-series on the practical applications and limitations of AI to frame discussions on how we can use it in the environmental industry. We discuss the legal considerations of using this powerful tool as well as the opportunities it presents, including greater accessibility. And before we begin, a disclaimer that the views, thoughts, and opinions expressed are the speaker's own and do not represent the views, thoughts, and opinions of the California Association of Environmental Professionals. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoy. Hi, I'm Jessa, and my pronouns are she, her. Hi, I'm Corinne. My pronouns are also she, her. And today we are featuring a panel on AI, generative AI, LLMs. And today we have Hobson Lane, who is an AI professional, a uh, professor as well, and also a social impact entrepreneur. And then we're also joined by Gayani Weewa-Singher, who is an intellectual property attorney. And uh, today's panel will be hosted by Corinne Lytle-Bonine. Thanks, Jess, and thanks everyone for joining us. We're really excited to put this um, panel together because we're doing something a little bit different. Um, I think, uh, you know, amongst us environmental professionals, there's been probably all sorts of discussion about what does AI mean? What, you know, are we going to have computers be writing environmental impact reports now to, you know, wow, I'm, you know, responding to emails a lot quicker using it. So um, we wanted to, you know, start a, a kind of mini series with our podcast by discussing, you know, AI you know, probably they'll correct us on how to correctly identify and uh, call it. But then also, you know, work, t speak with people who use this on a day-to-day -day basis and who um, have, you know, practical use and then also limitations uh, for this, um, you know, maybe scary slash opportunity that um, we're, you know, we're talking about, uh, you know, on a, you know, nation, if not, you know, global scale. So without further ado, um, I'd like to ask uh, both of our guests, Hobson and Guyana, Guyani, I'm sorry, to introduce themselves and give a little bit more information about their background and why they're here. Cool. I'm Hobson Lane. Uh, my pronouns are he, him. Uh, yes, I'm a professor at uh, UCSD Extension and uh, Mesa College here in San Diego. Um, we're, um, we've also written the book on natural language processing and action at, uh, at Manning Publishing. So uh, we're on the second edition of that book. And of course, the, the big highlight was these large language models and uh, AI that uh, we're going to be talking about today. Hi, everyone. My name is Kayani Virasinghe. I, um, as Jess, Jess has mentioned, I'm intellectual property and business law attorney. Um, I work with a lot of entrepreneurs and startups, and also there has been a lot of buzz about legal professionals using the AI, getting in trouble using AI, which is, has been covered in news. So um, this is just a pleasure to talk to everybody and kind of learning some of these stuff, too. So um, 
And as far as how I'm going to be referencing AI use here is I'm going to use generative AI as the umbrella term that will encompasses LLMs and all these language, uh, the other uh, reactive AI or machine learning or artificial um, intelligence machine re related stuff. So it's supposed to encompass all of that. Excellent. Well, thank you both and welcome. And as we start off, start off uh, all of our podcasts, uh, would you mind sharing your connection, if any, to AEP? I have to say this is me learning about AEP. Uh, Jessa invited me to this uh, panel. So um, like I said, it's a pleasure to learn more about how the AI impact can um, environment. I think it's a really important discussion that's not having having that much um, exposure in the media. Jessa uh, introduced me to AEP as well. And um, we were talking about all the environmental impact of uh, of AI, and uh, we've had several meetings at coffee shops to, to brainstorm about how we can uh, utilize AI to better the world instead of uh, sucking up more carbon. Right. Um, and I'm glad that Jessa, our podcast extraordinaire, is getting her uh, fair share of shout outs because she works really hard on this. So appreciate you, Jessa. Thank you, guys. And so to start us off, uh, Hobson, you know, maybe you could share a little bit about, you know, your background with regenerative AI, how you use it, um, and, you know, kind of what you see really as the, you know, correct or at least a correct definition of regenerative AI. Awesome. I wish it was regenerative, but unfortunately, it's just generative. Uh, so uh, what, a, what a, a large language model is something that tries to predict the next word. And so uh, Guyani was just pointing out that we use them to generate text. And so that's that's why it's called generative AI. Um, yes, uh, I, we, I'm also the co-founder of Tangible AI at um, with Maria Dieschel. We uh, wanted um, back in 2019, when when the first big large language model came out uh, called BERT, uh, she and I realized this is a huge opportunity for for nonprofits and um, the social impact sector, where she has been focused her entire life. So we teamed up to to build a company to support those nonprofits. And um, great, is that is that does that cover what you wanted to know? <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's really helpful. Um, and then maybe uh, to you, Gayani, um, do you have a personal viewpoint on the use of AI or chat GPT? I think, um, you know, when we first discussed uh, doing this podcast, I was I was kind of in the other direction. I'm not really sure where I fall because I could see as intellectual property attorney where all the the infringement issues can be because these language models, this generative AI is trained on material that was not licensed. Um, that's a huge problem as a legal side because you have to have a license to use creative uh, medium. That's what copyright is. Copyright gives somebody a, um, it's a, it's a, a copyright give you the right to protect your original creative 
um, work that is fixated on a tangible medium. And if others are using those without your permission, then it's, um, you know, there are some little bit of leeway with the fair use, but it's very small. But you hear a lot about uh, these uh, trading models have been fed a lot of material. Obviously, I don't think have that license. So, um, so I was looking more in that direction and going to your question, how do I feel about it? I have mixed feelings. <laughs> and I think, um, I do think it's not something that's going to stop. It's like when probably when the computers first came on board and you're the person who like writing, um, these are going to keep working. I, I think how we adapt to it and how we responsibly use it and ethically, um, you know, use it in a way that we wouldn't um, create liability for our clients or the other businesses and also honor the those who create these work who have copyrights. That's where I will stand on that. So that might be a little bit of a long answer, but that's, <laughs> that's what I have arrived at. No, we like long answers here, especially with complicated subjects like this. Now, Hobson, what about you? So, um, yeah, AI is, you know, the promise and peril with the Oppenheimer movie. It's it's comparable to sort of nuclear technology. It can be used for good and evil. And um, people tend to think of it as being that's that way, that it's just some sort of a dangerous thing that we can sort of regulate and and deal with that way. But unfortunately, it's quite different than nuclear technology because it's a technology that can actually build itself. It's the first technology that we've ever come up with as a human species that can build something that's comparable to us and our ability to think. At least we we think it might be. And uh, scientists think that, that that date at which we are able to build such a thing is has come closer because of large language models. And 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 so it has has it's like bringing in to existence a new alien species and giving that alien species influence over the planet that we live on not only an environmental impact but obviously the social societal impact so one of the big one of my biggest concern about ai is it's continuing to facilitate the manipulation of users, you know, literally making us users of a drug, this uh, technology uh, like social media and other uh, media and manipulating us in order to extract money from us and monetize it um, because we live in a capitalist world. Um, and another aspect of that problem is that only the powerful have access to these things. So the company OpenAI disingenuously named themselves that. They do not share this technology with the world. It's not open source. It's not in any way open. Um, and uh, they're, um, and so it's only under the control of billionaires. It's having such a powerful technology that's, you know, perhaps 10 times more impactful on society than nuclear technology and having it in the hands of a few elite is, is a, is a real danger to society. And it creates a lot of harm in the form of misinformation and bias and discrimination and greater disparity of wealth. So it's, I, I, I'm unfortunately um, embedded in this world where AI is more of a danger than an opportunity for me. Um, so uh, and it's and it's not and and it's more it's it's ethical and um, and just existential. Um. Yeah, I think you know when we 
you know, see news coverage or read news articles. It really is that huge spectrum of, you know, this is going to be the best thing for, um, you know, communities. We're going to to get so much done quicker, faster, all the way to the spectrum of, you know, everyone, every white collar worker is going to lose their job all the way to, you know, Terminator. Like, <laughs> so um, is there, you know, anything that you would, you know, like to include in kind of the, the framing of this discussion before we get into kind of the nitty gritty of how we all use it, but, you know, our, our, you know, things being overblown, are they being underblown? If we're, you know, talking about, you know, we think this might work, but it needs to be regulated. Are we capable of regulating it? Or, you know, Hobson, I think you gave a really good overview and I'm, you know, is there any other kind of big picture items that you think we should frame before, like I said, we get into kind of the details of how we're using it and why? At, at the social policy and ethics and philosophy level, uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a split in the debate around whether we should be talking about where we're spending most of our time talking and worrying about AI ethics or whether we should be worried about AI safety. So that Terminator problem, that's the AI safety problem. Is this thing going to, uh, uh, or the control problem it's also called. So the, the billionaires have signed up on, for that form of the problem because they think they, they want to be able to control this thing that they're building in order to be able to exploit us. And so they're, they're, they're only worried about that. The, the rest of society is really worried about AI ethics. So when these billionaires are able to control it, are they attempting to use it in a way that's ethical, uh, that's supportive of society and helpful and pro-social and all the things that um, that are not being demonstrated right now at, at that level of, of um, and this is and, and another thing that's to keep an aware, we, we're kind of, we've kind of become numb but there are $100 billion companies that are being created and destroyed almost weekly from Twitter to Facebook and Meta and, um, and OpenAI itself and Microsoft's Bing. The, these companies are being built and destroyed almost at, at such a rapid pace. The, the technology is already bringing about extreme change in the world. So. Uh, I think I think I, I, my, most of my concern will be about the AI ethics, the, the the harm that's happening now, right now, in the world, as opposed to this uh, hypothetical sci-fi problem of, well, if we if we lose control of it, it's going to take over the world. AI safety versus AI ethics. Sorry, or ethics versus safety. <laughs> no, I think that's a great breakdown. So getting into, you know, maybe more you know, on the ground applications of it, um, Kayani, especially, you know, uh, what are the potential legal implications um, in the workplace? You know, from your point of view, we've seen, you know, the the lawyer who had fake citations in the brief that was drafted by uh, AI. And, um, you know, I, that's maybe a more extreme uh, scenario. But uh, what what are you seeing in, in your practice? Well, well, I think actually um, it's, it's um, you know, this is a tool in legal industry. And um, they have also um, survey that was done by Lexus, which is one of the leading software. You know, they, they, they do the case management of the cases, shepherdizing. If you're an attorney, you know, these cases. And they, they did a um, survey of, of, I think it's like 
1,100 um, attorneys, uh, 1,176 U.S. lawyers, and 1,239 law students, and 1,765 consumers about the AI and what they feel about it. <laughs> and I had to say, um, lawyers are actually uh, in a little more of a knowledgeable place on AI, actually, and what the survey found. And there are a lot of attorneys and um, students who um, think that this can be a good tool that can be used properly and ethically that if it's regulated. So I think that's where we are coming at now. As far as the ex existential crisis of whether we are creating something, I think for me, that's like a little bit of, uh, right now. I don't know enough information to comment on something like that because I, I defer to um, experts in the field on that. But looking at where we are right now and how the legal field have evolved, I had to say, um, you know, it's there was a time when attorneys who are doing a case have to go through these federal reporters, these books to look at cases to see what case is the current case, the current law. And, um, you know, these kind of tools have really come a long way to help us practice better because now we just go to like Westlaw or, um, you know, Lexus or one of these um, sites and they pull up all the cases, tell you what's the good law, what's not, and you could go read it. So um, the problem is when uh, what happened in this New York case, and I'm sure everybody's a little more aware because it's been covered widely, um, that they, um, you know, they used ChatGP to draft the brief and then they validated the cases that were output through ChatGPT. And that's the problem because you, that's a new tool. You cannot rely on a new tool to validate itself. It's like asking somebody, okay, did you do this right? And then asking, well, are you sure you did it right? You know, like that's a, that's a, that's a very, um, not a good place to be as attorney. And I do have to say with um, ethics and the where legal field is, I seen um, there are judges who are saying you, if you used this kind of tool, you had to certify it. There are some judges like in, I think there's a, Texas judge that says you cannot use AI tools, generative AI, in any kind of like legal pleadings or writings. There are others. Um, so there's different point of views being um, pushed out right now. And I think we're going to, in the next few years, we're going to see this because um, like Hobson reference, this is part of Microsoft tools. This is part of like um, these legal software have the AI tools incorporated. Um, I just saw Zoom has incorporated AI. So now the issue is also how they're using this. Like I do worry about privacy too, because one of the things I saw on a post, somebody posted, I haven't verified this. So I'm just sharing it as a point of discussion is that Zoom's update to AI, they say you um, have an option to whether your data, like the voice and would not be used without your consent, but there is no opt out of that. So that's kind of issue is a big issue because they're collecting this data and whose hands this data is going to be. And we're going to see uh, data privacy, cybersecurity, all of these fields going to be impacted. And it's going to be on the professionals, the consumers, 
And um, not to mention, like if you're getting generative AI to write up something, you might actually be copying somebody else's work because it doesn't know how to authenticate what is this, the hallucinations, right? Um, I will let maybe Hudson uh, describe a little bit about the hallucinations, but the problem with that is, is you know, we there is no authentication that is can, um, it, it just generates stuff, it's spitting it out. Uh, and of course we are looking at a baby form right now, right? So, uh, but that's the issue with legal field and, uh, some of the things I wanted to discuss. Wonderful. That's uh that that brings up the, the big concern that I have is that it's sharing misinformation and that we are treating it as truth. We're treating it as an, a human companion. We're anthropomorphizing it. We're 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 utilizing it for things that we shouldn't be using it for in terms and um and that particular situation that Ghana was talking about was the where the, the attorneys, I think, were aware of this fact, but it was helpful for their legal case to ignore it. So this is another problem in industry, all industries, is where um, you can say, oh, it's not my fault, it's the AI's fault. And so they were trying to exploit this brief window of time when people didn't really understand what it's doing to claim ignorance, to use it, to purport to have to, to provide a briefing to a judge that says these were cases that this is, these are all the cases that support our case. And they clearly say that we're right and we win when uh, and all of those cases were made up. And um, and this is because uh, I'll give a, a brief uh, introduction to how the chat GPT is trained and why it is this way. Why why doesn't it just sh share us the truth? Why isn't it like Google search? Well, it's not designed to be. It's designed to manipulate us. It's designed to be a sycophant, or some people will call it a stochastic parrot, a random parrot that basically just it's designed to please us. Uh, if you've used ChatGPT and their web interface, you'll notice the like button. This is the same problem that a Facebook ran into. As soon as you create a like button, it creates a whole feedback mechanism where um, the person on the other side of the like button is going to try to get those likes. And it creates an incentive for providing sensational or interesting or influence essentially and that's what this chatbot has learned because that 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 those like button counts are are fed back through um through the system to improve <laughs> what the words that, that that it's predicting so when you start out a prop it uh, can obviously be answered in an infinite number of ways and so that very first word that comes out it has to choose among many possibilities of what directions it could go and then the next word after that and the next word after that and that's all based on how many likes will this word get how many likes will this word get how many likes will this word get and so those words are designed to feed you you in particular, so it can detect in your prompt the kinds of things you're interested in and what your motivations are, and it's going to be a sycophant and try to please you with its response. And so in the case of these lawyers, it was just uh, providing them exactly what they wanted, some case studies that showed that, I'm not sure what you call them, but these uh, <laughs> these these documents and these references to documents that didn't exist um, such that their case could be won. Um, and so... Um, and OpenAI does not 
in any way remind you of that with any of their interface. They try to make it look like a chat, like a conversation with another thinking, intelligent object, whether it's an alien or a robot or whatever, but they're, they're, they're acting like it's thinking. No, it's not. It's just, it can't do math. It can't do elementary school math. It cannot do common sense reasoning. Um, I could go into a lot more details about its capabilities technically, but it's not doing any of the things that OpenAI is advertising that it does. And so it's it, people that use it incorrectly can, can't be blamed for that. So I did recently see, because I did open a chat GPT account to just see what it is. And uh, they do put a disclaimer out. I don't know if it's a new thing um, that says that this cannot be re reliable, that it can have tend to have hallucinations. This might be because of what was happening, um, a new implementation. So I didn't find that, um, I don't know, like I said, it's a recently I engaged with ChatGPT, so I'm not sure when they implemented that, but they are putting it out now that do say that this is, um, you need to verify your own or something to that effect. There's a disclaimer in place. Yeah, I can add to that. And just to be uh, explicitly clear is that OpenAI is the company that operates ChatGPT because ChatGPT is in the media all the time. And that's, you know, I consider myself a, a lay person in this sense. And then when I go to ChatGPT, I'll type in ChatGPT, and then it's like, oh, no, it's OpenAI. And then it's just confused me. So I just wanted to put that out there. And I actually have it open in another window. So I, I'm like, what, what question should I ask? No, I'm kidding. But um, there is a statement at the bottom of the page, and this may be part of what you're referencing, where it says, free research preview. ChatGPT may produce inaccurate information about people, places, or facts. And then there's a link uh, to an August 3rd version. And then I haven't dug into that, but that may be pretty recent. So that is now at the bottom of the text prompt on the page. I saw that. And I do think um, going to like everyday use of this kind of technology, one of the things that marketing people or any of the other people who are creating, generating um, reports using this type of generative AI software have to be worried about, like I mentioned before, is the copyright issues. Um, the, um, you know, because it could be grabbing information that were not licensed and creating something and the copyright infringement goes to not just the, the company that facilitated it but the user as well so this is you know going back to a long time when like the songs were getting shared without the license right like there was a this very long time ago but people there's why there's dmca notices um, I actually don't know the um, acronym stands for off top of my head. I will have to share that for the description. But um, DMCA notices in the websites and um, you could send to somebody saying this is copyright written work, you need to take it down. Or like YouTube taking down material that have it. So I do think there are, um, we, we will see some things in parallel, similar way. Um, and then these companies, there are lawsuits 
terribly in quotes, I know that I actually haven't done enough research to reference specifics, but uh, that are getting sued for using some of these uh, material like the Getty images um, might be one of them. I don't know if they file a lawsuit, but I know there was a threat of a lawsuit. Um, so there are these, uh, and these images actually show that actual image that was used. So that's the problem, you know, that's uh, because you it plagiarism problems, <laughs> you know, that's the, these are the problems that really the creatives in the right now have to think about. And then of course, as a professor, I'm sure, I wonder how you're gonna handle like people turning turn papers, right? Like using generative AI to respond to things. Yeah, exactly. Um, first, uh, those two big issues you brought up. Um, the first is the data and privacy. Uh, so they um, and copyrights. So uh, when, when I was talking about companies being created and destroyed, the ones I was talking about being destroyed were like Twitter and Reddit and others that are uh, have built their um, their empires on user data, uh, where users uh, post things and they expect it to be there forever and available to anyone, including themselves. And if they want to take it down like they can in Europe, they should be able to delete it. Uh, and so, but um, once they saw ChatGPT utilizing all that um, all that data to make billions of dollars on the sale to Microsoft of ChatGPT by OpenAI then um, they said, oh, we want a piece of that ourselves. And so they then, so uh, Musk bought Twitter and um, the CEO of Reddit uh, started to lock it down and started to charge users for it. Um, and so um, our data that we gave freely under different terms and conditions than what's being offered now is now being used to, um, to make money off of us and and to exploit us and and that's the kind of dialogue that it knows how to speak is the Twitter dialogue and the and the Reddit dialogue the sensational inflammatory nonsensical misinformation and so um, but anyway uh, but the, the more more the other one that you mentioned was in academia yes uh, my students and teachers are all concerned with the cheating aspect of it and that's. And it's actually instead of being an efficiency improver as it is in most and like in the software development world. This model is actually useful in terms of it's really good at doing language modeling, doing translation, including translation from human uh, natural language into code. And so software developers are using it with uh, very good effect on their uh, efficiency to give them ideas about the next thing to write, the next kinds of lines of code to write. It's extremely useful in that area. But when you ask somebody, oh, somebody writing a term paper, if they're asking what's the next line of, of our next paragraph I should write, or even use it to write the entire paragraph, that's a problem because it's going to be trying to please that user. And and just to and you can't just say, well, there'll be a lot of uh obviously incorrect facts in the in the article. There are models that uh, do not um include uh, uh misinformation. And so those, those students are going to be able to use them to, to write very um, uh, convincing essays and uh, and answers to questions. Of course, it it passed the the law exam, I think, and uh, and the MBA um, uh, graduate exam. So um, it, it the these models can be used to simulate or imitate human intelligence in the academic world, and that's a problem. 
And it's, it's taking away from teacher efficiency because we have to spend more and more of our time trying to come up with very creative questions that can't be easily answered by uh, uh, a large language model or uh, generative um, AI. Um, so, uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a real burden on teachers to, to deal with this new technology rather than a, an efficiency improvement. Hearing off of that, though, what are are, are there opportunities for efficiency approval? Or, or aren't we already seeing them in things like, you know, as simple as predictive text and email or being able to kind of tone up or tone down the tone of an email with the push of a button? Or I know, you know, all three of you, including Jessa, use AI, generative AI on a day to day basis. So I'd be interested to hear a little bit more from everyone about how it how are you using it now and maybe how how it it is working in its current form. Uh, I could quickly uh, mention that we, this kind of segues into the social impact side. We're, we're using it with effect uh, to teach uh, students and middle schoolers in Africa, teach them math. So because it can do um, middle school math, but not quite high school math, and it can, it, it does an okay job, um, we can use it to answer their questions like uh, tell me a joke or um, we can use it for non-substantive things and combine it with what's called a rule-based chatbot that is more rigid in the kinds of curriculum that it's going to be presenting to the students. So we can use it in, in, in a way to keep the student engaged without allowing it to um, any of its misinformation to infect the, the students' minds. So it, it is being used and, and that offloads a lot of the data for many teachers in Africa right now for, for this particular chatbot called Rory um, that is deployed um, uh, there uh, with thousands of students per day. And you can imagine how those conversations with a teacher would have taken up that teacher's time. So yes, you're right. It's a, it's a big efficiency improvement in, in some areas of education and social impact. I think I referenced this before, like like the case law, you know, that's kind of thing where it's create, like make it easier for attorneys to like move from one task to another. That can be a really great tool. You know, it's been a great tool and it's keep improving those areas. Like if you had to put a memo together and if you could pull some of these information together faster, that you, you know, you're billing less time for the client. So it's good for the client and you, your response time is faster. So there's a lot of ways that can be efficient. And I know that there are judges and the lawyers are looking at how accessibility for the legal can be better. Um, you know, so, and I don't really think it's, a, um, you know, it's going to replace my profession anytime soon, um, partly because we also write the rules and we are the ones, uh, the most of the people who are making the laws are lawyers. So, but, uh, you know, but at the same time, I do think uh, there are tasks that can be um, outsourced to generative AI, but long as you had to be always going to be responsible as the attorney. So that's the other part to it. There's, I saw one of the malpractice um, insurance companies have put out a, um, you know, a bulletin that how they are not going to cover any malpractice created because the attorney used generative AI without checking other sources. So there are going to be restrictions on attorney's ability to use it too. Like I mentioned before, the judges saying you cannot use it with my code. That's the main thing, you know, the judges 
saying that that will control how you submit. And if you submit something, you can get disciplined or debarred. There's, um, I think those two attorneys in New York, because it's one of the first of a kind case, they got, and they, uh, you know, there were some, um, they they only, I think they got like uh, $5,000 uh, fine or something. That judge was very upset about what they represented to the court. That's going to get worse. It's the first of a kind, so it may have gotten some leniency, but that's not going to be the case going forward if attorneys are using it in a way that is detrimental to the clients. Or, um, you know, billing for time that you are not working on and letting a chat box do the work. That Those are the sort of things where I could really see discipline coming in and getting attorneys in trouble. So uh, there's efficiency and there's discipline. So, you know, we always care about our licenses. So at least I think a lot of, a lot of us do, should do. So I think that's gonna be a matter, you know, how that is represented. And California is very protective, consumer protective. So California uh, state bar is very protective of consumers. And um, so it's gonna be making some rules that will apply to us. And we might see across the country different rules come up with different states that allow and disallow, you know, because California also have very strict rules about privacy, a little bit similar to Europe, data privacy, versus um, with the big companies, there's, of course, some specifics versus rest of the country. So, um, you know, you're going to see those changes and how they apply to the state specifically also. And I, you know, I'm curious, realistically, do you think that either on a state by state basis or nationally, there's even an ability to provide those, you know, kind of regulations and rules that, you know, well, I think there's going to be coming down. Uh, they have been, um, of course, from both sides, people who love generative AI, the companies who want to use generative AI are talking to Congress to create a congressional action on these so that it will be the uh, law across the um, the country. And then there's going to be um, things that's going to get pushed back. So I think the key is we're going to see how they get litigated and how, how what the judges and the courts are going to say about these, how these laws or these rules are going to get applied to specific cases. So that's the other thing. It's like our, our cases and the facts of those cases always have an impact on how those rules get interpreted, uh, how the rule was interpreted. So you can never say, oh, this case came out to his per se. For instance, I will share the Surya of Dawn, um, which is, I think, was known um, a copyright office issued a um, state um, opinion on this. Basically, it's a comic book created by Christina Cash. Noah, who was filed for a copyright of this comic book, but she used Midjourney uh, generative AI um, to create some of the images. And initially, she, I believe she got the copyright, but then it was revealed that it was partly done with um, Midjourney use. So the copyright office went back and issued, said, looked at how much of it she contributed, how much of it was the um, Midjourney, and actually offer, um, issued an opinion. And the right now, the copyright law, as it stands, generative AI cannot have copyright. It's had to be a human. 
and it doesn't matter how much is time or substance that the generative AI put versus the uh, in um, the creator. Creator is defined at the moment as the human. So if you want to own a copyright, like if you're creating stuff, you want to copyright it, you have to have been a human. <laughs> so you need to watch out how much you're using these tools. Uh, same thing goes for patterns. So there was a case um, called Teller versus Vidal um, that issued that uh, it's only humans that can be an inventor of a pattern, right? Like can get an application for a pattern. You cannot get a pattern on something that AI generated. So, um, you know, so there are laws already in coming in place. And I recently, there's an article going to be coming out in San Diego Lawyer that I co-wrote with a, a colleague of mine. And we talk about how if you want intellectual property rights, it's had to be human created or invented. So I will just leave it there. <laughs> that brings a, a really interesting problem uh, to society there is how do we know whether it was whether how, how we can't always trust that the creator uh, of either a, a legal brief or a uh, an essay or a or a painting is going to admit whether they use generative AI or not and so we have to develop tools to detect it um, there have been tools in the past there are there is technology that does make it possible for even in text to embed what's called a watermark which makes it possible to detect if passages of text and i think it's uh, about 100 words or enough to put in those subtle shifts of wording such that it can be detected as being generated by a particular model. Uh, unfortunately, OpenAI solution was just the opposite where they said, oh, we, we can build a model to detect it. And then they, well, of course, when they went to deploy it, it was about 10% accurate. Uh, that means 10% of the articles they got correct were, that were fake, were, were generated by AI, were detected as being AI. So um, they can't even detect, they don't even, have the technology in place within internally uh, to detect it. So um, it's going to have to be regulated um, by people like Guyani and um, that in a way that the uh, the providers of the technology are required to uh, insert those things that are uh, that indicate whether or not it was generated by AI or not, whether it's text or images. Watermarking images is quite straightforward, but uh, text, it's also possible. I'll just bring that well, up. Well, there's, there's definitely, that's a really good point. There's legal ramifications for lying on a submission like a copyright application or patent. Those actually include um, breaching federal law. So um, you are attesting to that. And um, I tell my clients, I'm in the transactional side. So when I'm filing something, I do an interview with them and I talk to them. I try to find much information as I can. So I do think, again, there's going to be gatekeeping responsibility for attorneys for what they're submitting because as a, so I'm not 
prosecuting patents anymore, but the patent, uh, as a patent attorney, I could tell you, you are supposed to be the one determining who is the inventor. It's not the, in, usually you see in academic settings and um, others where they will try to add everybody who worked on a project uh, as a publication to a patent, and that doesn't work that way. Inventorship is determined by who um, came up with the idea, the, how it's conceptualized, how is it reduced to practice, who contributed to it. So you could have one person who contributed 90% and one person who contributed 10% or 1%. They are both equally inventors in a pattern. So same thing with pattern inventory rights. I think there's going to be a discussion. What tools did you use? Did you use AI? And if you do, what, um, you know, there might be have to do some disclaimers to when you're submitting because it is attorney responsibility. It is ethical. Uh, we actually have ethical responsibilities when you're submitting something to a court or like to a, a regulatory body or USPTO, United States Patent and Trademark Office or Copyright Office. Um, you know, so I think that's what it is. But you're also going to see people who's going to know and going to say that copyright or that pattern is invalid because I know for a fact this person was bragging about how much they used AI. So you're going to see that kind of cases too that come up, like not just detection from hopefully we will have good software that can detect it, but we also going to get these, you know, where people talk and, you know, then you are risking your right. If you actually have an inventorship wrong on a pattern, that pattern is invalid. You lose the rights. So I think I do actually tell companies, the startups especially, you have to be very careful how you draft a pattern and who's the inventors. Make sure you give credit because if you forgot somebody or you leave out somebody and they come back and show that they were a part of it and you were left out, that you can lose the pattern. So that's how you break patterns in uh, patent litigation. You look for who was there and who was included, who was not included. So um, those those things gonna really matter when it's come to this kind of stuff too. If AI was used, somebody say, oh, we didn't use it, but then the, somebody else say, yeah, they did. <laughs> so. It's it's an area of litigation, good for attorneys in some ways, bad for attorneys in other ways, of course. I like the the cycle of um, making attorneys' lives easier to making more work for attorneys <laughs> in order to litigate these issues to, you know, having that uh, catch-22. That's why we, uh, AI cannot replace us yet. <laughs> you know, we are part of the cycle. <laughs> What about, I know this is something we touched on earlier, but, you know, putting my environmental professional hat on, um, I think Hobson, especially, you know, you, you're really well informed about what, you know, the environmental impacts are going to be of an increased reliance or growing reliance on uh, generative AI. And I'd, I'd like to hear a little bit more about that from you. Well, just to, to lay the groundwork, it took about 5,000 ton, metric tons of carbon to create uh, chat GPT-3 or GPT-3. Um, that that was about three months of thousands of computers working in parallel to create it. And that's equivalent to about, um, uh, depending on the occupancy of, a, of an airplane, but it's, it's, it's equivalent to about half a million 
flights across the Atlantic uh, by by individuals. So that's a huge environmental impact just to create the one revision of this chatbot. Now we're on GPT-4, and so that that carbon footprint has been recreated again. And the use of it every day. So uh, these things can type at about 200 to 300 words per minute. And each one of those tokens uh, can cost, um, each one of those converse, each one of those chats can cost uh, about a penny uh, per, per back and forth that you have with a, a large language model. And uh, if you cost that out, it's a, um, and that, that, efficiency of thinking that you're doing with that is very low compared to the human brain. So in comparison, the human brain, so like your, your desktop computer might run at uh, two kilowatts uh, and your human, your brain runs at about uh, 80 watts and um, uh, equivalent calories of food that's going into your body. Um, and so it's like, it's a small light bulb compared to a, a, a PC and and of course, the thought that you get out of a human mind is much better than what you're going to get out of a, and and the, and the computer that I just mentioned, you know, the two two thousand watts for uh, for a desktop, that's not at all the kind of compute that's required for these models. It's a it's a it's a server farm, and uh, it scales very poorly and inefficiently. Um, it's a whole it's a whole building complex that's required to run these models, and so the the environmental impact is huge. Is a solution or or you know maybe as we're talking about you know how we need to regulate or make requirements for this could it be to you know require that these you know processing farms and these huge complexes be powered by carbon free electricity that's a great idea and that's that's a foot at um in many ways, that's uh, just uh, greenwashing the problem because if that green electricity is being used for ChatGPT, it could have been used for something else, like heating somebody's home and um, or uh, air conditioning a, a place in sub-Saharan Africa or something. I mean, it. it uh, simply saying that we use green energy is not enough. You need to, that just creates incentives in the world to create more uh, green energy, which is a good thing. But we also have to consider, you know, are we using our resources effectively to support society or are we using it to exploit society? Um, to um, And is it, is this, is it, are we spending that energy wisely to, to create good in the world or is it creating harm in the world? And I was I was thinking about this as you guys were speaking, and you know, as a, a an entrepreneur, business owner, I use it for efficiency. And um, when I use Chat GPT, I use Chat GPT, and when I use it, it's so I can be more productive. And I feel like there's you know societal pressure, um, especially where we're based. You know, California is the fifth largest economy in the world, maybe sixth. Last I heard, I think it was fifth, and. So it's like produce, produce, produce. And so in theory, I should be able to use chat GPT or whoever we could use uh, generative AI to make our lives simpler, easier, and not work as much. Whereas I see it the opposite where, oh, now I can do twice as much. I can do even more with this tool. And so thinking about it from that aspect and the environmental impact, it's you know, theoretically, we could have these server farms run and humans would consume less because there's not as much to do. You don't need 
to be on Zoom meetings. You don't need to be at a computer using electricity, doing all these things. It, it makes everything more efficient. But in reality, what you know, I hear you saying is we're just doubling up on all the usage and energy. Yeah, it is an additional expense and an additional effort. And yeah, that's a societal issue um, where, and and these, it's like marketing. I I don't I don't live in your world of marketing, but it feels like to me the more marketing there is, the more marketing there needs to be. It's almost like a self perpetuating cycle where you know your competitor puts out more marketing, so I better put out more marketing. And so if you have AI that's helping you generate more stuff, then your competitor is going to have to generate more stuff. And that points something that I am more familiar with is the the, the fact that. You're lucky to be able to have access to ChatGPT, to be able to afford to use ChatGPT, to, to have the technical proficiency to be able to use it. And other marketers don't. And so they are going to feel the pressure to, to get up to speed in order to compete in this world of, of marketing. Um, and so uh, the, the the economic divide between the haves and the have-nots is, is growing larger and larger as these technologies become more and more vital to getting work done. And one of the, you know, in addition to the, um, you know, potential efficiencies um, that it does bring individuals, could it be used at all to lower the barrier for entry for either, you know, key groups or, you know, one of the things that I was talking about with a friend who's an occupational therapist is that she sees a lot of um, future in, in, you know, lowering the barrier to entry for some of the, like, disabled community, especially, like, with physical disabilities, where, you know, someone, you know, who has access to generative AI who can, you know, write notes much quicker because um, they have, you know, predictive text and can, can you know, kind of do that better for someone. Um, are there other instances where, you know, if regulated well, you know, we we can use it for social good? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I worked at IRA here in San Diego, where we were building glasses for the blind, uh, helping them interpret the world uh, through their ears um, by by giving them descriptions of what's going on around them. Um, but the technology we were using was a very resource efficient. It had to run on a mobile phone. It had to it had to even run with the embedded in glasses. Uh, and so um, that technology was available. And that was uh, four years ago that I or five years ago that we we were able to demonstrate that technology. It was not utilized because it was not uh, well. Uh, ChatGPT. I don't, I don't know. There, there are efficient ways to do those things, and they're not being used. Unfortunately, that that particular project was canceled, and uh, that product never went on the market. and And they're now talking about using large language models to do the exact same thing we were already able to do in a much cheaper and more efficient way. And so, um, yeah, it, it can be. You're right. It it does help people with uh, accessibility needs, and it is a huge boost in their lives. Um, but uh, yeah, <laughs> that's all I'll say. <laughs> I will add to um, this discussion about accessibility and um, maybe, um, you know, in more inclusiveness. The challenge with some of it is I think there was some article about a recent publication with, I think, BuzzFeed or something. They they use one of these generative AI models to create um, images, Barbie images of certain, um, you know, these. And they pulled that article because it's actually 
showed the bias within the system. And that's a huge problem because they are being trained to, they are being trained and they're being trained to pick up the same biases. So maybe even voice biases that we see in the society that we are trying to work against or like to be more expansive. So, you know, when you are looking at a, um, you know, somebody who's a doctor or attorney, they will create a, um, you know, generative image that is probably doesn't look like me. Um, you know, uh, for those who are listening to the podcast, I am South Asian. I'm a woman of color. Um, you know, so I think the challenge is that if these generative AI also pick up the same biases that are prevalent in our society, especially in some sectors, then we are really going to be keeping some people out too, you know, like unless this corrected. So other thing um, with technology improvements, like one of the things I've been more sensitive to is because I'm dark skin. I seen where certain technology, like same laptop camera that works well with Zoom for me, actually doesn't work well for Google Meet. So the, uh, you know, it was making my my skin tone wasn't coming up well. And that's a problem because it's not just for vanity purposes. When you, there's implicit bias, somebody, how they appear, how they, how they come, you make judgments, these judgments, right? And these judgments are based on image your brain is getting. And if I'm coming off where I'm grainy or I'm look like I'm a hot mess uh, because the camera is like not lighting my image well, that's, that is something that's taken in. So um, same thing happened with oximeters and those thermometers that are detecting the um, temperature from the forehead, they were not detecting darkest pigmented skins well. Now, why I bring this up in this kind of setting is because these are also technology incorporated into these. Um, so that's where we really have to discuss it. Is it accessible to everybody? Can the, like when Siri first came out, I wasn't able to talk to Siri because of my accent. It's always had issues. Now, of course, I could train it, right? But do, um, but that's the thing. The technology needs to be trained in different um, societal groups and access like what Hobson was talking about, like in other, maybe Africa and all these other places, these um, training models have to get there too, you know, not just be a tool that we could send out, but a tool that was also trained. Otherwise, it's not usable. Um, I will stop there. That's a really great segue into um, the sort of unseen, transparent effect these things are having on us. These are tools. First, we make our tools, and then our tools make us. Uh, this is a, a quote by a famous philosopher. I can't remember his name, but... Um, the, these tools are changing us. They're they're exacerbating biases. They're exacerbating division in society, and so we need to find tools that where the company itself at least is trying to be uh, fair and ethical in the way that they're using it. OpenAI is not. ChatGPT is not. And one company that is trying to give you factual information that will never ever try to lie to you that is not a sycophant is. One called U.com. It's a search engine similar to Google. They have a U.com slash chat that you can use. It's slightly more ethical and uh, less polluting of your mind if you use a, a chat bot like that rather than uh, chat GPT. So I'd encourage 
people to, to at least check it out and consider it as in your toolbox of things to use. Um, and uh, anything, of course, coming out of the open source community, you want to support things like Llama 2 and um, and uh, Hugging Face. Sorry, uh, that's my speech, my <laughs> preach. No, I love it. And that actually, um, you know, is in line with, I think, uh, what I'd like to leave as a closing question to each of you is, you know, what is your message to environmental professionals who are, you know, maybe uh, both excited and I'm, at least from my opinion, after uh, hearing uh, this podcast, maybe a little more scared um, about what um, uh, generative AI can do for the environmental profession. So, and we'll start with you, Hobson. Okay, great. Uh, so um, the Salton Sea is being mined for uh, for precious metals, and uh, a previously polluted environment is becoming a, a source of resource for uh, for uh, the sustainable economy of electric vehicles. And that's that sort of thing. You can you can imagine all the ways in which AI is being used to facilitate that engineering work. So in the engineering world, especially in robotics and automation these tools and software development, these tools are extremely beneficial. And when that, so of course, whenever you're using that in the environmental industry, um, it's an, it can be a, a big boost. To, it can help you make technologies, uh, uh, sustainable technologies become competitive with non-sustainable extractive technologies. So it's a, it can, it, there is a, there is a ray of hope and it is, and and many engineers who are conscious of that are, are, are utilizing it in, in very ethical and, and useful ways. I think my um, the take is that just because you can, you sh doesn't mean you should. <laughs> so I will leave it at that. I think um, you want to consider what the implications are, uh, you know, whether that efficiency is worth the the trouble is going to create uh, you know all these factors and i think having these ethical considerations and really kind of learning more about it where you will help you develop where you want to stand on it i i'm always a proponent of knowledge is power so that's where i will leave it at no, that's great. I, you know, in the immortal words of Jurassic Park, like just because you could doesn't mean that you should. Um, so I think that's a great closeout. Um, well, I really sincerely want to thank you both um, for joining our podcast uh, today. I learned so much. Um, and I think that, uh, uh, you know, this is going to be really valuable for, for our listeners. Um, I'll turn it over to Jessica for any other closing thoughts. Yeah, again, just want to echo... Corinne, thank you guys so much. I have spoken with you each on this topic outside of this podcast, and I learned a lot and I learned even more today. And so I just know how valuable this will be. And, you know, I think, Diana, you said something earlier, like this is, you know, when computers came to the market, it's like, this isn't going away. So how can we learn to work with it in an ethical way and a knowledgeable way? And I think you guys really highlighted a lot of points um, for all of us to consider. So thank you guys so much. Really enjoyed it. It's been an eye opener. Yes, I learned a lot too. And I really um, thank you all for having me on this podcast. Thanks for listening. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to be updated when new episodes are released and leave us a review to let us know what you think. It also really helps us to share the podcast with others who may enjoy learning about the environmental industry. If you want to submit a shout out or any feedback, please send an email or voice memo to podcast at califaep.org. The email again is podcast with an S, podcast at califaep.org. 